This episode will be a little different today because we have two guests offering us a glimpse into a very special athlete and agent relationship, which turned into so much more. Everett Glenn is a pioneering sports attorney and currently the president of ESP Education and Leadership Institute, a nonprofit organization equipping young black and brown student athletes, in particular those from under-resourced communities and schools, with the tools to adopt an academic, sport, and life balance. Before establishing the Institute, Everett managed the careers of a host of professional athletes. In 1983, he negotiated the richest contract in NFL history for a rookie wide receiver. During his sports career, Everett represented 14 NBA and NFL first-rounders and four Hall of Fame inductees. Everett is a 1974 graduate of Oberlin College, which is my alma mater and how we met, and received his law degree from Case Western Reserve University. Clark Kellogg was a standout basketball player and student at Ohio State University and went on to be the eighth player selected in the 1982 NBA draft by the Indiana Pacers. He averaged 20 points and 10 rebounds per game before chronic knee issues led him to pivot into broadcasting and serving as vice president of player relations for the Pacers. He's done radio and TV broadcasting for the Pacers, ESPN, CBS Sports, just to name a few. And personally, I grew up hearing Clark's voice broadcasting college basketball games uh, mainly through March Madness, and also on NBA 2K video games. But what impresses me most about his work is outside of sports. Clark is one of the most philanthropic individuals we'll find, and it's not every day that a former college basketball player goes on to serve as alma mater on the board of trustees. We broke this conversation into two parts. In part one, we'll talk about what it was like for them each growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, their athletic careers, their leadership, and the powerful example they demonstrate as an athlete and agent relationship. Then in part two, we'll talk about their work outside of sport, including philanthropy, starting and serving community organizations, and their views on the sports industry. I feel very fortunate to know each of these two leaders, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Everett Glenn and Clark Kellogg. who are both Cleveland natives. So I thought I'd just ask to start, what was it like for you two growing up there? Uh, and maybe start with Everett first, just because he grew up there first. <laughs> yeah, defer to my elder for sure. That's, that's a good move, Zach. That's exactly how it should be done. And that's right. What was it like growing up in Cleveland? It was, mm. uh, it, it was like a tale of two cities, right? Mm. Um, because I lived on the east side in Cleveland. I don't know how it is today, uh, but when I was growing up, uh, I never, ever went past uh, the farmer's market, which is in like right on the west, like maybe west third or something. Mm -hmm. But you don't really feel like you're on the west side. <laughs> you don't have to go across a bridge. But, <clears throat> I never went on the west side. I mean, it was like everything I did was on the east side. It was a segregated city. I mean, I didn't even meet a white person wow. until college. Well, actually, I did. Let me back up. I did meet them, not in Cleveland, though, but like when I was in the special education program at Oberlin and at John uh, Carroll and at university school. But in my neighborhood and in my everyday moving around, uh, I didn't. I mean, it was, uh, 
that was really all I knew on 84th and Quincy. So I didn't feel deprived or uh, disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. We didn't have internet and all that kind of stuff. So you really didn't see what other people are doing like you can now. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I just thought this, this was the hand I was dealt. I'm going to make the best of it. Um, again, I didn't feel disadvantaged or discouraged or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I was aware of is the separation. And not only did I not go across the bridge to go to the west side of Cleveland, but I went to the U- Case Western Reserve for law school, and they have an area which is right adjacent to a reserve called Murray Hill, mm-hmm. uh, which is an Italian neighborhood. And, and I never in my life went to Murray Hill. Because, <laughs> 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 I mean, the reputation was that yeah. they didn't like black folk there. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if you went up there, something might happen. So I just didn't ever go. And even mm-hmm. to this date, I just drive through. I've never stopped. They have restaurants and all kind of stuff. And uh, they've actually moved to the, the university closer to Murray Hill with mm-hmm. new developments and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just didn't. I mean, I, I mean, I had a good childhood. Every at Fairfax Recreation Center, which was around the corner for me, I was on 84th and Quincy, and Fairfax was on 83rd between Quincy and Central. That's why I spent most of my time growing up at Fairfax. Mm-hmm. I mean, I learned how to play baseball, play basketball, how to swim. Um, those guys, Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Jones, they became like surrogate dads to me. My dad was, you know, was alcoholic. He was never around. Mm-hmm. And so I just hung on about the Fairfax. How about you, Clark? Yeah, like you know, yeah, I'm a little younger and mine was a little different, but there was that sense of segregation. I grew up in a little small suburb, East Cleveland, which abutted Cleveland Heights and um, was actually a lower middle income class area. Um, I had grown up prior to that. I guess we moved over to East Cleveland. Actually, it was kind of like the Jeffersons when we moved because we were going from Cleveland proper. Um, on 123rd and Superior, which was um, predominantly black area, actually all black area. I didn't see or encounter any white folks in my neighborhood there. But when we moved to East Cleveland, which was only about 10, 15 minutes away, I think Mm -hmm. I was in the second grade when we got to East Cleveland. And there were a few white classmates that I had. There were one or two, maybe three white families that lived on the block, but that didn't last super long. Um, As I got to middle school, Kirk Junior High School, then it was predominantly black, pretty much all black in East Cleveland in the area that mm-hmm. I grew up in. And there was that sense of segregation. But I had a, you know, my dad was a policeman in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was a stay at home mom. I was the oldest of five. I've got a younger brother and three younger sisters. And then my aunts and uncles, all four of my grandparents were in Cleveland. Uh, actually, one lived not too far from wherever I grew up, my um, paternal grandfather lived on 89th and Cedar and I can remember going over there and visiting Um, but I had a really uh, sports was at the center of it basketball primarily um, from Mm -hmm. the time I was nine or ten my dad worked typically um, his regular job and then would moonlight at high school football games as a security guard at a Mm -hmm. local department store Higby's as a security guard would do Browns games 
him and my uncle both were Cleveland policemen, and they would work Browns games, and I would hang out with them on Sunday Sunday <laughs> uh, morning and afternoons, and they'd stick me in the, in the dog pound. It wasn't the dog pound then, but I'd be in the bleachers with a bunch of fans cheering the Browns on and loving every minute of it. My dad and uncle would be working in their uniform, and uh, I've got a lot of good memories about growing up in Cleveland. Uh, the Browns. Um, getting exposed to basketball, the East Cleveland YMCA where I wrestled and, and played hoops. Um, <laughs> my elementary school principal was uh, was a guy who, white guy, extremely engaged with our students, was just terrific at what he did. And he actually um, was part of the reason I ended up going to, to St. Joseph High School when it was time for me to go to high school um, versus going to Shaw High School, which was the neighborhood school for me. And that's where I really had my world opened up a bit in terms of diversity from all black neighborhood and all black middle school to predominantly mm-hmm. all white, all boys high school mm-hmm. um, in Euclid. Uh, but no, I, my childhood was uh, family was always around. Our house was typically the gathering spot for, you know, holiday celebrations, Fourth of July, Christmas, New Year's Eve, that kind of stuff, folks would typically loiter at our place since my mom and dad had five kids and it was easier for people to come to us than for them to cart all of us to someplace else. So, um, no, but I had, um, it was, it was, um, it was positive, not perfect, but, um, solid, stable, Mm -hmm. loving, um, and and good memories. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you both for sharing that. And, and, uh, yeah, thank you. How do you guys, when you, when you think about um, yourselves as you were growing up and sort of your identity and just what you thought about yourselves, especially you guys both talked about, uh, you know, uh, sort of the segregation uh, in the areas you grew up. But, um, yeah, what do you remember about sort of your self-confidence, what, what your goals were, uh, and sort of your outlook on life was like? I mean, let's start with uh, Clark this time. Yeah, you know what, Zach, for me, sports was such a huge part of it, especially basketball. Once I gravitated to basketball, I was probably nine or ten when the love affair started for me, and I couldn't get enough of it. I (laughs) spent every extra amount of time I had at the playground or in my backyard. My dad put a hoop up for me when I was probably in the second grade, third grade. Um, it was a gathering place in the neighborhood. And then during the summer and even during school, if the weather was good, I'd loiter at the basketball court right outside of our elementary school after school on warm weather days. And then summertime, it was almost daylight to dark. And mm. I was pretty good even early. I mean, I wasn't great, but I was a little better than most kids my age. And I, I had a lot of confidence um, early on. I don't even know where it came from. I think as I've grown and read books, the birth order element, Mm-hmm. is something that's pretty uh, research proven. And being a firstborn, uh, I got a lot of attention from my folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I never really was lacking for belief. And even though I didn't have a broad exposure to the world, what I saw uh, kept me thinking I could do at least what I was seeing and maybe something different because it was all tied to hopefully being able to be a pro basketball player. That seed kind of mm-hmm. got planted early. And it, and again, I don't, 
I, I can't even tell you where some of it came from. Um, I just can't recall not thinking that I could uh, do something good and be, I had a pretty healthy um, view of, um, of myself in the, mm -hmm. in the realm of what um, I could see and, and feel and touch. I mean, mm -hmm. and so it was, it was solid. I mean, I, I, I never recall being uh, feeling uh, less than, I mean, we would have conversations, my parents about the white man and race, mm -hmm. racial discrimination as I got a little older. And it always, you know, it always made me a little uncomfortable as I think back on it, because I thought that, you know, people can be good, whatever color they are. And I'm mm -hmm. going to be different. That's kind of how mm -hmm. I thought. I, I just kind of felt like I was going to be be different. So that's kind of what I, I can recall from my uh, my own sense of identity and confidence. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Everett? How was, uh, I know, I know a little bit of, about, uh, you know, the Oberlin experience and how you ended up there. What were you thinking, uh, especially as it relates to sort of the possibility, the possibilities you were imagining for yourself? Well, um, until I was in the sixth grade, I mean, I didn't really, I don't think I had any necessary thoughts about my future. I just lived day to day, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but uh, they had uh, a standardized test <clears throat> that they administer. And then I got one of the highest scores in the city of Cleveland. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> this was in the sixth grade. And that's when they uh, put me in this uh, summer program at Oberlin. Mm -hmm. And then the summer of the seventh grade, I was in a similar program at John Carroll. And then between eighth and ninth, I was in a similar program at university school. And then uh, my high school years each summer, I was in upward bound. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me exposure that <clears throat> up until that point, the only thing I knew was really uh, between 79th and 89th. Mm -hmm. That was my whole world. <clears throat> And everything we did, and we maybe went up to 105 to go to the, uh, I forget the name of the park, but we used to go up there and play baseball and that sort of thing. But like, cause I mean, I was I was happy and uh, happy-go-lucky kid. I'd never really felt one way or the other. But after I got into these programs, and in these programs, they had <clears throat> uh, white kids and and white teachers and and I was able to excel. And so I was confident. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, but those six summers between middle school and high school gave me the confidence that I could compete mm -hmm. with anyone. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was some of the guys that I met along the way. Actually, it was <clears throat> one of my teachers, the one who got me into this Oberlin uh, program we have main contact even up to this date wow wow and uh Man. and i told her i wanted to be a social worker mm -hmm. and she said a social worker <laughs> <laughs> i've never forget this conversation she was a teacher right yeah and her husband uh he owned the the neighborhood pharmacy uh -huh. and and i used to i used to work at the pharmacy back when i was a kid and then once I start showing this academic promise, uh, Miss Fan took me out of the 
pharmacy and said, look, okay, what I'm going to do is just take you home with me and then you could tutor my kids. What? Mm -hmm. Wow. And so she had, uh, well, Rod was the, well, Gail was the oldest. Gail has recently retired. She was a principal for years. She went around and going to Spelman and mm -hmm. I don't know where she got a master from it. Then Rod is the banker. He's the senior VP at the Bank of Nashville and and then Carol is a human resource professional. So I used to go and help them. Wow. And and this is when I saw like a family, right? Because my family, my dad was never there. Mm -hmm. And and we sort of like just did whatever. So because I was interested in sports and school, then and I had two older sisters, so I didn't really do anything with my older sisters and then my brother who was a year older than me uh, he wasn't trying to be like a scholar mm -hmm. and and so we didn't have a whole lot in common other than we were brothers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the kinds of things i was doing he actually thought i was wasting my time right yeah. and um, i told miss fan i was going to, i wanted to be a social worker because i was thinking what i want to do is help that's all i wanted to do was help since i was a kid And she told me that um, you don't want to be dealing with welfare mothers your whole career. Hmm. And, and I'm saying, well, why do why you say that, Miss Van? And because I just want to help. She says, okay, well, if you want to help, there's a lot of ways to help. You could be a doctor and you could help. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you could be a lawyer and you could help. Oh, and I said, okay, uh, but I don't know. I don't know no doctors. I don't know no lawyers. Mm -hmm. And and she told me that okay, well, get your stuff. I'm going to take you over to, I don't know if you know this guy, Clark, but Stanley Tolliver, he was, uh, he was Johnny Cochran before Johnny Cochran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard the name. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Big time criminal. Yeah. Big lawyer. Attorney, uh -huh. uh, in Cleveland. And uh, he lived over there on Wade Park, where they had those big mansion yeah, kind of right, houses. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I was like 12 years old, whatever, and I went and I walked in this house and I'm looking at these high ceilings. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> And I said, man, what, what do you do? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. He said, I'm a lawyer. I said, okay, Miss Van, I think this lawyer thing might work. What do I have to do? Wow, <laughs> is that right, man? That's... The rest of history, yeah. Mm -hmm. man. So, uh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, I had the confidence. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I was going to be successful. And... Then I met a guy who became a mentor to me uh, when I went to Oberlin. And, and we started talking about this stuff, this sports stuff and mm -hmm. and all this money being made and and how all the players are black and all the other people are white, everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, and we had this guy in Cleveland, Mark McCormick, who actually started this whole deal yeah, called Player Representation when he oh, considered wow. Arnold Palmer and Jack. Nicholas, that they could make money away from the game, right? Because in golf, the only time you get paid is if you win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you can play a whole lot of tournaments and don't win, you don't make no money. <laughs> <laughs> and so he told me about this uh, marketing and stuff. And so I'm reading about him and all this stuff that's happening right in my backyard. And so I, I decided probably when I was in high school that I wanted to be involved in sport in some kind of way. Mm. Uh, but I, I still wasn't sure how. 
And it wasn't until I decided to go to law school that I figured, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to represent players mm-hmm. and, and try to create a more equal playing field mm-hmm. for them because the guys, you know, they just they just do what these guys say. They don't, they don't ask no questions. <laughs> just the mm-hmm. sign here. Uh, and uh, I thought the guys deserved better than that because I saw it as an opportunity where they could set themselves up for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And not just this, you know, 15 minutes they might have, if they would, you know, build relationships. And, uh, but you gotta have skills to do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Most of them didn't have the skills to do it. In fact, I don't know if Clark remember, but uh, we went to Houston uh, to talk to Clyde Drexler. Oh yeah, I remember. I remember okay. and, yeah. and, and Clyde, when he saw Clark, <laughs> heard Clark talk, he, you could see it on his face. I, I can't be like that. I'm not that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a basketball player. Mm-hmm. And so talking about the future, that wasn't something that he was in. He's talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that was... Uh, <clears throat> It was good. I mean, I was confident, and I'm still confident, but I've, I've changed a lot. I've got more compassion and patience and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff now yeah. than I have then. Yeah. But uh, not cocky, but in fact, I actually was embarrassed, though, besides knowing uh, I was confident in myself, but I was embarrassed. My dad was, he was just a factory worker, right? Mm-hmm. And when I was in these programs, like the university schools, then Dale Spitzer's son, and that's Spitzer Ford. He got dealerships all over town, and, and all these folks who had parents who were, you know, doing good stuff, and they would be talking about their parents so more than they talk about themselves. Mm. And what I had developed was a defense mechanism to just talk about me mm. and my accomplishments, mm. so you don't ask me about my dad. Mm. Let's, uh, I want to back up a little bit back to, um, what you were hitting on Everett in terms of like, you know, the, the social dynamics of especially big time college sports. So Clark, you were a big time college athlete at, at Ohio state, uh, you know, all conference MVP awards. Um, how does that ring true to you? The, the sort of dynamic that Everett was touching on, what was your student athlete experience like at a major institution like OSU? Yeah, it was pretty much what people would envision and envision or expect it to be in that Ohio State is a huge brand and institution, not just statewide, but nationally and since then, even internationally. I mean, I came into college in the fall of 79, highly recruited out of high school and uh, really had a um, kind of a storybook high school journey. Uh, you know, being a black kid from East Cleveland and going to St. Joe's, a predominantly white school, having success on and off the floor. Everett said a few things that resonated with me, too, around the confidence piece. And I'm thinking about some of the seeds and some of the affirmation, seeds that were planted and affirmation I got from my mother and father around education, even though neither one had completed college. My dad had maybe done a semester or two through sports in college, but my mom never attended college. 
Um, yet there was always this sense that there was value in education and not only being a good person, but being a, an educated person. So I took that to heart. And then mm. I had teachers, too. I think about I've mentioned my principal, Mr. Whalen. He's since deceased. But he was for us. And it was a predominantly black elementary school. He was a white principal that mm-hmm. just showed great enthusiasm and care for the entire student body. And he had graduated from St. Joe's. And I think that was part of the reason that uh, he approached my parents about that. And I was in some enriched mm. academic programs in elementary school, had a really good um, African-American teacher, Mr. Burroughs, who was firm but fair and demanding of us. And it was probably, I think it's the only African-American teacher I've had, him and Mr. Conley. Um, hmm. Mr. Conley and Mr. Junior were both at, at Kirk Middle School, but Mr. Burroughs was at my elementary school. He was my sixth grade teacher, and he was all business all the time. Um, he was on a mission to um, hold us to a high standard, and I know that was part of me um, wanting to be um, um, successful academically, and also because of what my parents instilled in me. And I didn't I always, even early on, I, I wanted to be both a really good basketball player and a smart person. I liked school. I liked mm-hmm. being able to, to learn and, and converse. So early on, I think, but I know those folks, my parents and um, select teachers and our principal were, were part of me um, really embracing uh, wanting to be um, as good as I could be as a student in addition to excelling and trying to reach mm-hmm. my dreams as a player. So that, that foundation gave me a chance when it was high school time and I was doing well in school and playing at a high level to actually have my pick of schools as I was being recruited and um, got to Ohio State. The whole state recruited me. That's ultimately why mm-hmm. I ended up there. Um, my teammates were all Ohio guys. and So I'm there, and at that time, late 70s, early 80s, it's still big time, Big Ten basketball, great exposure, mm-hmm. great competition. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was um, riding the wave. You know, I was thinking mm-hmm. that, you know, I can, um, I've got a chance to be a pro if I stay healthy and keep working in addition to getting a good education and being a college graduate. Um, so that's kind of where my focus was. I was pretty much myopic on those areas. And then to being a decent person, I wanted to be somebody of good reputation that mm-hmm. other people could, could look up to, starting with my siblings and make my folks proud. So I always tried to um, carry myself in a, in a resp- And my parents were adamant about uh, not getting too full of myself because I had a few trophies and newspaper clippings so they um <laughs> they, they made sure along with my extended family that um, you're still just um cliff that's my middle name and that's what mm-hmm. everybody in my family calls me so but um the college experience man it was um it was fun it was it was it was good i mean it was all that i'd hoped for you know looking back i wish i would have done more off the court in terms of engagement relationships but you know, mm-hmm. sometimes there's um, a cost and a sacrifice to trying to be great in one area. Sometimes you um, put off some other areas, and but the trade-off mm-hmm. was, was was good and and um, and worked out well for me. I don't I don't have any um, significant regrets. Definitely. I want to move into your post-college careers. Uh-huh. Um, so, Everett, you started out as a successful attorney. Um, 
And I think, Clark, right as you were, were deciding to come out of college and enter the draft, Everett, you were uh, entering the field of sports representation. And you, you started talking about that, Everett. But tell us more about um, what your mission was, because I don't think you were just any old sports agent. Um, <clears throat> well, no. I mean, I was an attorney. Um, first of all, I didn't really refer to myself as an agent uh, because agents, you know, you just could be a used car salesman, you could be an agent. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had put in 12 years of, you know, school, then four years of college, and three years of law school, and taken and passed two bar exams. So I, I was a lawyer. Uh, representing players, and I charged them like lawyers, like an hourly rate, not a percentage, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, so what I was trying to do really was to, I mean, the big picture was to probably create economic power mm-hmm. by having these guys like do business with like uh, a black insurance person or a black banker or. Mm-hmm. The, the necessary things that they're going to have, why don't they consider people like me, you know, who are professional? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I know why, because the agent is white, and so everybody the agent's going to introduce him to is going to look like the agent. And so I, I was like on a mission, um, almost representing the whole race, not just mm-hmm. me. To try to bring about what I thought was the necessary change. Uh, I mean, for example, if you consider uh, like the oil industry, uh, and until like the early 60s, there had been no oil and commercial quantities found in the Middle East, right? Hmm. And then uh, BP and Shell and those guys, they found oil in Iraq, in Iran, in Kuwait, in Saudi Arabia, in Venezuela. But those people there, they didn't have uh, any knowledge of the oil industry. They didn't have any resources. And so those oil companies basically took their oil and paid them a royalty for their own product that was underground in land they owned. Mm-hmm. And and then they used that money. Uh, well, the oil companies they do what they do, right? But then at one point, these companies realized that they are being exploited. I, I think what happened, they got these first little royalties. That's the story I tell. <laughs> they get these first few royalties, and they sent a couple of the princes over here to the United States to get an education about the oil industry. Hmm. And, and they figured out that this posted price is a price that the oil companies manipulate. So that what they were receiving was different and less than what the oil companies are charging other people for. So, so they formed OPEC. Hmm. And, 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 and then they didn't have Facebook and Instagram and there was no email, so I imagine they had to get on the Campbell and laugh from my wreck and share with them what they had discovered, right? And that is that uh, we've been ripped off. Mm-hmm. And, and so they formed OPEC, and, 
and the rest is like they say history. I mean, they they created a 75% shift in the economics of oil. And then they used that money to build their countries. I mean, these companies were dirt poor. They didn't have roads. They didn't have schools. They didn't have fancy hotels and commercial. And they have all of that now. Hmm. Because they took their resource. They took control of their resource. And by definition, a resource is something that the people who own the resource exploit to support their lifestyle and their standard of living. So I'm saying, wait a minute. Okay, so they got oil. What do we have? We get black oil. <laughs> and and unlike oil, which is uh, we're running out of oil, uh, we're not gonna run out of Clark Kellogg. Okay, there's gonna be another one. He's not gonna be just like Clark, but he's gonna he's gonna. And so if we could get our hands around this natural resource called our athletic talent, then we could address again and tie it into this whole desire I had to help. Okay, because I wasn't mm -hmm. trying to get control of this resource so I could be rich and go someplace and just enjoy life, but right. just so we could try to impact our community. Because we needed so much and we raising up these guys and and, and then we're sending them off and, and most of them don't come back home. And, uh, and then they're being exploited, not literally exploited, but people are making money off of them. They're supporting their lifestyle and their standard of living and the lifestyle of their kids and their grandkids. I mean, for example, I'm dealing now with Kevin Demoff. He's the president of the Rams. I mean, there's nothing special about Kevin, except his dad was an agent. Hmm. And his dad used to represent half of the Rams, so he got to know Rosenblum and the owners and that kind of stuff. And they gave his kid a job as a ball boy, and now he's the president. Hmm. <laughs> you know, so I'm thinking we ought to have those same kind of experiences, right? And not just be the talent on the court. Hmm. And uh, so that's what prompted me, and I figured. So if I go and enlighten these guys, I mean, because most of them had never dealt with professionals, right? So something as simple as how do you charge? Uh, hmm. And so I think when I sat down with Clark, I don't know, I know I did with most of the guys, I imagine I did with him too. I would take this percentage, this 3%, right? And say, well, your contract is going to be, you know, X number of dollars, say, say, you just start, I mean, just do simple math, say $3 million. If you take $3 million and take, you know, I don't even, I don't know what percentage was, let's say 5%. That's, uh, $150,000. And if you divide $150,000, like by my hourly rate, I don't even know what it was, but then they say, 350. So that's like 428 hours. Hmm. And and so that if you divide that by eight hour days, that's like 53. That's like the time between the draft and the time you got to show up for camp. Mm -hmm. So the only way I could earn that money is if I work every day, all day, just on your stuff. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now that's impossible because I have other stuff to do. The teams have other stuff to do. And so, so man was again, in terms of having this spirit of servant uh, and wanting to help, want to help these guys understand how these things work and how you can still get the same thing, but you don't have to do this and you don't have to do that. And, and I don't need to know the guys at the shoe companies because if I'm representing you, they just go ask you who should I call, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, but a lot of guys didn't understand that and they thought it was some special stuff that was secret and, and, and you know, if, I, if you go with me, I got all these contacts. I know I say, that's fine, but you don't need all of that stuff because everything is based on what you're doing, your talent. Hmm. So I think if I didn't do anything else, I, was, I succeeded in helping players beyond just the ones I represented as you fast forward to today where the players feel way more empowered uh, than they did in the past. I mean, we take the guys in the room and negotiate, or they on the phone, or there was involvement. They just didn't, I just call them and say, okay, we got a deal, and uh, get on a plane, but actually talk about this stuff. So I was trying to be a servant kind of a leader. Maybe that was my introduction to the transformation that was going to take place later in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for me, Zach, um, just to piggyback on that, that's what appealed to me. When I visited with Everett, I visited with a couple of other agents as I was contemplating leaving and going to the NBA and uh, the empowerment, the education. Um, Mm. Obviously, we had a common history of Cleveland, uh, but I had great respect for his um, expertise and his desire to teach me and to educate me. And I've always wanted Mm. to be informed. Um, That's just part of how I was raised. And I have people in my life that helped expose me to the power of education. One of my great mentors, still a friend, white guy, Ohio State grad, Ira Novak. I worked his, in his insurance agency for several summers mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. time I was in high school until my sophomore year in college and learned a vast amount about business and saw a different world and got some real good business um, mentoring from him. And we still stay in touch. And uh, But I wanted to be educated. I wanted to understand and the fact that Everett was different in that way. He was different than any other agent that I had talked to in that Mm. regard. He was more interested in serving and educating and empowering and in in trying to get you to see the big picture of your your value and your potential influence and impact, not only in your own life, but in the life of other people, particularly other black folks, how you might be able Mm -hmm. to to strike a, a chord and bring forth some positive um, gains and uplift for them. And that all of that resonated with me. And I tell you, there were folks that wonder who is he? Cause he was just getting started. And, uh, I yeah. just felt, I just felt strongly that I, and I wasn't afraid to be a little different, uh, in part due to my upbringing and my desire to be educated and, and kind of be my own guy. So, um, mm-hmm. that's why I ultimately went with him on those factors, man. And it was, I tell you, um, it's similar to what LeBron has done with his guys, um, yeah. it's just 25, 30 years later. I mean, we were headed in that, that direction, I think, uh, Everett mm-hmm. and Sports Plus and so forth. And uh, LeBron is going to be a phenomenal case study, I mm-hmm. think, for what he accomplishes while he's alive. And I think much of it will last well beyond his, yep. his lifetime because of um, the kind of things that Everett uh, 
was 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 attempting and, and still doing. He's just doing it in a different form, but the mm-hmm. kind of things that he he desired that that vision that he had for for um, for those of us that he would represent that we would start to see and um, be empowered and educated to to carry on in that in that fashion. That's right. So, Clark, when you come out, you're you know your lottery pick and uh-huh. great great player early on. Um, but I, I've I've heard from both of you sort of um, how you had to uh, sort of overcome some uh, low points in your life. So yeah. the one that's coming to mind for me for you, Clark, is just dealing with injuries in a, in a shorter career. I'm sure that you dreamed of. How did you cope with that? Man, it was hard. I'm telling you, it was hard. My wife and I shed plenty of tears and um, long nights about it as I went through my three knee surgeries. Ultimately, um, those ended my career. I wore away cartilage in my left knee. Mm. Cartilage doesn't, it does replace itself, but not to the degree that it's good enough to continue playing basketball at the highest level in the world. And so um, after being drafted at 21, um, I was done playing at 26 and mm-hmm. a young, you know, a promising career was over. Um, and thanks to Everett and to others, I had always kind of seen basketball as a means to an end. It wasn't going to be the totality of my mm-hmm. life. I certainly wasn't expecting it to, to end when it did. And that was painful, but um, it was during that time, man. And, uh, you know, the, the challenges of the knee surgeries, the re- rehab, and then ultimately the, reality that it was over. It was during that time that God got my attention through a local minister in, in Indy and mm. exposed me to the living, um, all-powerful Word of God and a relationship with the God who gives you life and breath through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, that I actually came to a place of um, one relationship with God through faith in Christ. I surrendered my life to Christ after spending time studying the Bible with um this minister, Brian Chapman, my wife and I, like I was young in my marriage, Zach, we had gotten married in 83. Mm-hmm. So my first knee surgery was 84. Come, came back one, from that one fine. 85 was my second one. Mm-hmm. Didn't play much after that. Then I had one more in 86, kind of a last ditch effort <laughs> to um, see if I could uh, find a way to repair what was going on. That was the winter of 86. And it was that during that time, uh, that I came to faith in Christ and yielded my heart and life to Christ. Um, and that new relationship, as I went through rehab in the first quarter of 87 and into the spring of 87 and ultimately to my retirement in August of 87, is really the anchor that um, gave me a foundation to to um, live on and live for, that newfound relationship with the, the God of the scriptures, the, the uncreated mm-hmm. creator, and that along with support of family and friends, but it was really that um, life-changing decision to, to yield my heart and my life to Christ that um, is the anchor that sustains me to this day. I mean, clearly that was a period of, of difficulty, and yet because of that new relationship and understanding that God loves me, cares for me, made me in his image, wants me to represent his image no matter what I'm doing or not doing and that he's there with me in the midst of shaping me and developing me through his word and spirit to to represent him really um, fortified me and changed me. It transformed Mm. me, man, from 
thinking about uh, just my way and myself and started to think more God-centered. And uh, so I retired in August of 87. Uh, and it was a tearful press conference, but I was excited about what my future held because I knew God had my future. God had me mm. because I had given myself to him. And from that point on, um, I didn't fret. Financially, I was in good shape um, because of a, 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 an insurance settlement with my contract. So um, mm -hmm. we weren't stressed or strained. Um, we were very comfortable. So that helped. But ultimately, um, I got my start in broadcasting that, that um, September of 87, not knowing that was the direction I would go, but got yeah. a chance with the Pacers to do TV, um, not TV radio initially. And then Cleveland State, my home city, uh, reached out to me to do a few games on television for them. Um, and off we went, man, approaching this new opportunity in the game behind the microphone mm -hmm. with the same kind of zeal and commitment and work ethic that I approached playing with. I said, hey, I think I can be good at this. I know the game. I can communicate. And now it's just a matter of learning how to be an analyst. And I'm up yep. for the work. And so here we go. And 30 plus years later, I'm still at it, man. Still <laughs> talking about hoops on television and on a video game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everett, how about you? Uh, overcoming, uh, you know, what I've heard a little bit about, uh, you know, just personally from you, but overcoming uh, sort of low point in your life. And um, ever you recently said that, that Clark slaved your life. Uh, and what did you mean by that? I mean, I was basically operating on automatic pilot, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Justice Clark had uh, articulated um, by giving me an opportunity with him as a top guy, then I could have a conversation because the first thing these guys ask you, the only thing they ask you really is, who do you represent, right? <laughs> Yeah. And uh, but Clark had uh, not only done what he did at Ohio State, but then he come in and averaged a double double as a rookie, which only five guys had done. <clears throat> and so, and so I had something to work with, and uh, and I worked with, right, and, and, and turned that into fifteen first round draft picks mm. in three years. Wow. And uh, and and I think I mean so I mean the light if things were just going I mean I, and I and and thank God or thank anybody I just thought I had worked hard mm -hmm. for it and uh, and I had worked hard but uh, it, and I understand the days it was his grace yeah yeah and really was his plan. And uh, because of where I grew up on Quincy, I saw a lot of stuff. I mean, I saw a lot of uh, drug mm -hmm. use, and, you know, criminal behavior, and I mean, and I had never partaken in any of it. I just saw it, and. Uh, and uh, 
I went to this party, right? And, and these guys pulled out this cocaine. I didn't even know what it was. Hmm. And they just pass it around, and I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do when this comes to me? Mm -hmm. right? and, and I got to be tough, and I grew up on Quincy, and, and these guys don't think I'm a chump, and all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff is going through my head, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I tried it. And, and it was the worst mistake that I made then. But today I realized um, that was the best thing that happened to me because no telling what else might have happened to me if I if, if, if I had this talent because it caused me to try to figure out like what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I had never even related um, the lack of involvement uh, that my dad had in my life. I had never really related that to anything. Mm -hmm. Not involved. I mean, he worked back from my wedding. He was not in my wedding. Mm. He was not in law school graduation. Wow. Mm -hmm. He was not in my college graduation. He didn't come to anything ever in my life. Mm. And he lived in the same house that I lived in. And I just couldn't understand. How could you bring a person into the world and and not yeah. care and not show that you care? Mm. Well, and 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 so I found somebody who do care, and that's Christ. Mm. And mm. and I get this Bible and I turn to it. I just open it up, and the first thing I came to was First Timothy the sixth. Here's a trustworthy saying mm. that deserves full acceptance. Christ came to save sinners yes. for you are yes. For that very reason, I'm going to show mercy. Mm. Uh, and I knew I was in the right place. Mm. And, uh, mm -hmm. and just like Christ said, I just uh, poured myself into the Word. Mm. And, um, mm. and then, I mean, I, then I forgave myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, mm. and I came to understand that, you know, again, he, his, his will, I was doing my will. And, and I think and I've, I've accepted that his will for me was uh, to do exactly what I'm doing now. Wow. And that is uh, the same as I was doing then, but inspiring kids who, who may not turn out to be lottery picks yeah. in basketball, mm -hmm. but they become doctors and lawyers mm -hmm. and scientists and engineers. Yeah. Uh, so uh, mm -hmm. accomplish the same thing a different way. But it was a great ride, and it took me a while. I mean, I was uh, I was more embarrassed than anything. Hmm. Uh, and uh, when I say Clark saved my life, these guys they like did an intervention, right? And so they invited me to. Well, they didn't invite me, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we kind of we kind of volunteered you. They <laughs> come to Chicago and. My wife, what's she got to come for, right? And, uh, and they didn't have to do that, right? They could have just packed their bags, went and found, they could have called these other guys coming after them when they was coming out, and this could have been, 
They could have just moved on seamlessly. But they stopped to try to help me. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that was huge because I had never in my life really asked for help. I was always trying to help other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so I didn't know how to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And uh, you would ask me how I'm doing. I'm fine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm fine. I could be bad, but I'm fine, right? And uh, yeah, so that was the start of this process. I mean, it cost me my marriage, it cost me my business, and and then I recovered and and I remarried. And uh, Deborah, my current wife, um, she's a strong Christian, and and I think that's what attracted me to her. And uh, and she just took me to church because <laughs> I had never really gone to church, I, I read, I mean, I was in Bible study and that kind of stuff when I was a kid, but it was just more than some place to go because my friends were going. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, so we got involved in the couples club and Bible study. And and I just kept reading this, this Bible, man, and I just kept finding more nuggets like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, this, this is exactly where I need to be. In fact, I think Clark the first uh, when I went and I read that from First Timothy, this was Bible study, and they was going through the Book of Romans, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which, if you, uh, I don't know how much time you spend, Zach, but in, in the Book of that's a powerful book, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of meaning there, and I just kept hearing it over and over and over, and then they said, "All you have to do, yeah, is ask." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If you want to just yeah. ask, yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, and so I mean again, I, I cry only. I don't cry because I'm sad or anything like that. I just cry when I think about yeah. what I was saved from. Yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, because uh, I would have been dead. I would have been in jail. Uh, something like that would have happened. Probably should have happened while I was doing it, right? Mm -hmm. But for the grace of God, yeah. you know, none of that happened. And, uh, and so I sat on a path of trying to understand this word and helped me understand a lot of stuff that had happened in my life that I never really stopped to think about. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I was impatient and I learned patience. Um, I, was, I wasn't compassionate. I was compassionate to extent, but I didn't really weakness or a lack of knowledge on the part of other people. Mm. And, uh, so all that kind of stuff changed and, and, and now I can say that I'm grateful. Yeah. Uh, you know, that I went through that because uh, it created a whole new game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, who, and actually I'm even better equipped now mm -hmm, <laughs> than mm -hmm, I was before mm -hmm, to really mm -hmm. impact other people because I don't have to rely upon my advice or what I think. Uh, I'll just tell them what the word says. And I, and I don't necessarily pull out the Bible, but I know what the word says so I can pull something up mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They can't really argue against it. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, this is uh, it's been a great ride, man. I, I wouldn't change anything. Uh, at for a period of time, I thought I had lost like influence and like a platform mm. uh, that I got through working with the pros. Right. But, but what I realized is, I mean, I had done enough of that, so I could then come back out and still talk about that experience and still. Lean on those relationships, and because mm-hmm. I'd also gotten over uh, the embarrassment, right? Because I, I had learned that we all sin and we all fall short, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't worried about you know nobody talking about me because anybody talking about me, <laughs> somebody's talking about you too, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and and I would too if I knew I don't even know you, right? You just. Uh, <clears throat> But it was just so, I mean, I never forget that when I was recovered and I was strong and I was ready to get back on that horse and I had gotten back on the horse and when I was back practicing law and I was still doing great stuff like I had done all always and I was at a conference in D.C. and I was on the panel, right? And this one guy, Gary Lafayette, who, uh, I mean, I think he was jealous because <clears throat> I was doing this stuff and and people think that you think more highly of yourself than you really do. Mm-hmm. And so they were like almost happy that I had, you know, so they look at like I was not down and out, right? Mm-hmm. And so I show up in DC at this conference and he walks up to me, hey, and he look at me like he's looking at the living dead, right? <laughs> <laughs> Where, 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 you, where you been, man? I, I, I mean, I thought he was dead. You know, he didn't say that, but that was the look yes, on the like look. Yeah. Right. No, man, I'm on the panel, man. You ain't read your program. <laughs> because it wasn't, it wasn't widely known. I mean, people suspected, but they were saying that's the, they were saying I was giving caught drugs. That's how I got it, right? I mean, and uh, yeah, right. Okay. Because they, they don't understand how it works, and they think, you know. That, you got to be enticing them because that's what they were doing, enticing mm-hmm. and all this other kind of stuff. So I said, no, man, I'm on the program. You, you ain't read the program? And uh, that that was such a good feeling mm. uh, just because uh, it, to me what it said, like he didn't understand the power of God. Yeah. I said, no matter what you do, yeah. nothing right. that he can't forgive you for. That's right. Nothing. Right, amen. And he just didn't know that. Mm-hmm. 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 Amen. Thank you, Lord. Wow. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so that's why I said I don't even listen to. I mean, I just listen. To, I don't listen to secular music. I mean, I just listen to gospel music. And <laughs> 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 uh, uh, if they play it, I might listen to it. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I find myself uh, every day. I mean, I'm just meditating or mm-hmm. I mean, uh, even this COVID I go to three four churches now like online mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I just can't get enough of it because it has sustained me Amen. Amen. Hmm. Amen. it's helped me get through yeah. and uh, to the other side and and really given me again the, uh, again these are things I didn't know before that you know uh, you get a spirit of 
not a fear. You know, in a sound man, these these scriptures that you know I'd heard people say, but I didn't know where they got them from or what they was trying to say, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now I know it, so I can go out with full confidence that, in fact, what happened in my life qualifies me. Yeah, amen. Because mm-hmm. you, know, you can't really help nobody if you haven't been through yeah. yourself mm-hmm. something, yeah. uh, some kind of challenge, and 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 made it onto the other side. Man, uh, I've heard Everett share, but again, you get mm-hmm. um, you get other little nuggets in it. It just, um, man, it just is um, it's powerful to, to to see it and to hear it. You know, because I've seen it through his journey and uh, mm. his impact, and uh, I'm an example of it. You know, yeah. also therapeutic for me. Yeah, man, I I loved hearing from you guys. You guys are rare breeds, and uh, really appreciate your your contribution. podcast is a part of the Coaching for Civic Leadership project, an inquiry into the art of coaching for civic leadership, which I describe as the act of coaching to improve our society, with an eye toward developing leadership, problem solving, and social interest and understanding. If you'd like to keep up with this project, you can subscribe to the podcast and also subscribe to updates, writings, and interviews on our website, coachingforcivicleadership.com.